Beloved, open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 10. And um, I want us to go back to verse 14. And we're going to read from verse, verse 14 all the way through chapter 11 and verse 6. I want you to stand together with me as we read. But before we read this text, I want us to pray. And so let's lift our hearts together to the Lord right now. Father, we need you to open up your word to us. If you do not speak to us, Lord God, by your spirit, this will be a closed book. No matter how much intellect we have and no much, no matter how much, you know, power, thought power we might think we possess, Lord God, apart from the illumination of the Holy Spirit, apart from, Father, your will to break open to us the bread of life, Lord, we will not understand, we can't understand these truths. We can't understand what's being said here. And so I am praying, Lord God, that you will open up, please, your word to us. I'm praying that, Father, as I preach your word, you would grant me to be filled with your Holy Spirit, that you would put the unction of the Spirit upon me. Father God, the words that I would speak would be in accordance with your will, would be in accordance with your Holy Writ, would be in accordance, Father God, with your purpose and your plan. And I pray, Lord God, that you would grant ears to hear to everyone in this congregation right now in a soft heart, Father God, to receive your word. I pray, Lord God, that you would take your truth and you would press it down deep into us. I pray, Lord God, that we would be moved by your voice, by the voice of Christ in the preaching of the word. I pray, Lord God, that we would not be left unchanged or unmoved. That, Father God, we would not be left unaffected. God, we would be confronted with the truth and transformed by the truth and edified and strengthened by the truth and Father, saved by your truth. I pray for every soul in this room. Lord God, for those that are in Christ, I pray that you would use today and use your word today, this morning, to to encourage and edify, to convict. Father God, to rebuke, to reprove, to correct. I pray, Father, for those that are not in Christ this morning, you would use your word, Father, under the unction of the Spirit of the living God to bring life where there is now death. And you save them. Father, we are dependent entirely upon you. Accept your word. Accept your word. Be broken open to us. We will not hear you. And Lord, we need to hear you. We need to hear you. So speak to us. Speak to us. And train our souls. By grace. For godliness and uprightness. God, bring us to salvation and sanctify us in you, I pray. All of these things in the merit of the one who has merit before you, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord, our King. Amen. Paul writes, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. 
For their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I asked, did Israel not understand? For Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Amen. You can be seated. You know, beloved, God has, through Paul, has just described to us his method. Right, He's, we, we went back last week, we looked at what, what Paul has written. God has just described for us, through Paul, the method for redemption. The method of the way that, the method by which he redeems sinful people from every tribe and nation and tongue, right? Here's how God does it. He sends forth preachers. He chooses and he sends forth preachers to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. To proclaim the good news, the excellent news of salvation and reconciliation with God. Not by human works, but through the sinless, spotless, blameless life of Christ. And through his atoning and debt paying and wrath absorbing death and then his glorious resurrection from the dead, right? He describes this salvation... That is, that is for all who hear the voice of Christ in the preaching of the word, hear his voice calling them to repent of their sins that have separated from the, them from God and to believe the gospel. It's a salvation that is given to all who call upon the Lord Jesus Christ as he is offered in the scriptures, right? Who call on him, who call on him from the depths of their hearts, who call on him from desperation, who call on him believing in their souls. That Christ is merciful and gracious to save. Praise God, the goodness of the gospel is that God has done what you and I, what wretched sinners, man, could never do. What fallen sinners bowed down with the weight of sin could never do for themselves. We don't have the resources. We don't have the power. We don't have the riches. We don't have the merit to save ourselves. But God, who is rich in mercy and who is great in love, delights to save sinners. Praise God, right? Salvation's of the Lord because He's the only one that can accomplish it. And now in this text that we're looking at, here's Paul once again Going back to this question of the Jews. Why is it that they have not believed? And by contrast, why is it that so many Gentiles are entering the kingdom of God? 
Now, I know what you're thinking because it's just normal. I know what you're thinking. You're probably sitting here thinking, okay, this text that we're looking at is not immediately applicable to me. We have, we've talked about this before. We've talked about the Jews before. We know that there's an issue there with the Jews, right? It doesn't really, it's not really applicable to me. It's good theology, of course, but ultimately, ultimately it's unimportant to 21st century Christians living in America. And I would say to you, not so fast, my friends. Okay? Not so quickly. This text has some important worth to our souls, some vital worth to our souls. And what makes this text important this morning, besides the obvious fact that it is the word of God, are a few, just a few things that I want to share with you. First of all, think about this. But when we look at this text, it's going to remind us of the absolute importance of a real, a vital, a living personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, a faith that unites us to Christ, a faith that actually saves. Here's why. The vast number of unbelieving Jews whom Paul describes here in this text, this vast number, they had been the recipients of a great number of spiritual advantages that the Gentiles did not enjoy. They had, they had been given the promises of God. They had been given God's word. They had witnessed numerous miracles. They had heard spirit-empowered preaching, not just for a few years or decades, for centuries. And they never knew and they never loved the Lord. They never truly believed in it because everything they heard and everything that they'd been given, they were not mixed with faith. And I would say to you this morning, it is vitally important and essential for us to examine ourselves and ensure that we are in the faith, that all of our hope and all of our faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are united to him by faith and walking faithfully with him and seeing the true evidence of grace in our lives. Let us not be like the myriad of Jews who sit under spirit-empowered preaching and have been given the word of God. And remain in unbelief. And fool ourselves that because we come to a worship service where the word of God is preached and where it is read. That simply hearing the word of God preached equals receiving Christ by faith. Are you with me? Number two, this text goes right to the heart of God's character. Look we got to ask ourselves, is God trustworthy? Does he keep his promises? Is he faithful to his people, right? Now, those are deeply important questions for all of us because here's the deal. How are we to trust implicitly in the Lord if we are not convinced that he is trustworthy and faithful? How do we trust in him completely and not swerve or waver or question God's character? Unless we are convinced that he is absolutely trustworthy and faithful. And this text proves yet again that he is. Third, this text reminds us of the big picture. It reminds us of what really matters in life. And what I mean by that is this. So often it's true of me and it's true of you. That we can become very self-focused and worldly focused in our lives. And everything just is, it's, it's, it's all determined by the three foot diameter around my physical body. And as high as my eyes are. That's all I see. That's all that's important to me. 
And we get dragged down by troubles and by hardships of life, whether it's difficulty in marriage or difficulty with our kids or trouble at work or sickness or whatever else. Or perhaps we look at, you know, the rampant ungodliness of our nation and the disregard of God and and the immorality that infests our society and the political corruption, the death of truth, the threat of war. And it's really easy to lose track of the big picture And beloved, this text reminds us, what is the big picture? And the big picture is that the Lord is sovereign over all things. And that His promises and His purpose doesn't fail. And that He is gathering for Himself a people from the nations of all the earth to the praise of His infinite glory. And everything that we endure from the nations, I'm sorry, everything that we endure in this life, it is ultimately... Ultimately, for the good of us, his people, and for the revelation of his glory. We got to remember that. And to remember that and to, and to, to get a renewed vision of God at work among us is not only of practical importance, it is essential. Our lives, beloved, take on an eternal significance when we realize they are lived quorum Deo, right? Before the face of God. Then the last thing is this, is that what this text ought to do in all of us, believers anyway, is that it ought to stir us with a very great longing. It ought to stir us with with a determined and a prayerful desire to see the scales come off the eyes of unbelievers, right? Jews and Gentiles. It ought to stir in us a desire to see people saved. If that, if you're not moved as a Christian to see other people saved, then I would question honestly whether or not you're truly a Christian. And I mean that. And I might offend you. And I'm glad if it does. If you're a Christian and you're not moved to see other people saved, if it's not your desire, if you're not longing and praying for other people to receive the same grace that you have received, then you are either the most cold-hearted Christian that God ever created or you're not saved. It ought to move us. And so this is a background. I want us to look at what Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has to say about this question of the Jews. Why is it that so many Jews are lost and unbelieving? Why are they rejectors of Christ while so many Gentiles are entering the kingdom of God? And in short, his answer is this, is that the Jews have no excuse for their stubborn disobedience. They got no excuse. Paul begins by saying, look at it, verse 18. Look at what he says. He says, but I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For the voice, their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. In other words, here's what Paul's doing. He's putting up some possibilities. He's postulating some possibilities for why the Israelites are, as a whole, so rejecting of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he says, is the problem this? Is it just that they haven't heard? Is that the problem? Like, maybe the gospel hasn't reached them yet. Maybe they haven't heard it yet. And that may be the reason why they don't believe. Is that what the situation is? That they just haven't heard the gospel? And he says, no, they've heard it. They've heard it preached. They're not ignorant of the gospel. In fact, then he quotes from Psalm 19.4 to prove his point, right? Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Now, if you're a student of scripture, when Paul quotes that, what are you thinking? I'm not sure he quoted that properly. That's what you're thinking. Because here's the deal. 
If you're familiar with Psalm 19, you know that Psalm 19 is about, the first part of it anyway, is about the general revelation of God in the creation, isn't it? It's about, it talks about the heavens and the sky. It talks about the sun and the celestial bodies, the sunrise and sunset, how they all declare to every human soul that God is, that there is a creator, that there is a sustainer of all things, that there is this transcendent God who is worthy of worship and worthy of honor and worthy of praise, right? But it's general revelation, isn't it? In other words, General revelation, listen, we've talked about this before, general revelation, the awareness that there is a God and that you don't worship him rightly condemns you, doesn't it? General revelation can condemn you, but general revelation cannot save you, can it? So what's going on here? Did Paul make a mistake? Is he misapplying scripture? The answer to that, if he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, is what? Of course not. So what's the deal? Well, here's what Paul's doing. He's reaching back to Psalm 19, and he's using the general revelation of all of the celestial bodies. He's using that as an analogy. He's saying, in other words, just as the revelation of God in the creation has gone everywhere, it's continuous, it's abundant, it's universal, so too the preaching of the gospel has gone out through the world. It's being preached even right now. It's gone out abundantly and universally through these God-appointed, God-sent, faithful preachers of the word. What's happened with the gospel is just what Jesus said would happen with the gospel in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 when he said to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon me and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and all Samaria and up and to the ends of the earth. Paul's saying, look, here's the deal. It's not that Israel hasn't heard the gospel. They've heard the gospel. The gospel has gone out through whole, the whole world. That doesn't mean every individual person has heard it. That's not what it means. But Paul is speaking representatively. It's been so widely proclaimed to so many types of people, to Gentiles and Jews and slaves and free and barbarians and Scythians. So many types have heard the gospel. I mean, nobody has an excuse. Just as God has given a witness to himself, to all of the world through creation, he has sent his message to the ends of the earth, and the Jews have had every opportunity to hear the gospel and respond to it. But more than that, it's not just a matter of the gospel having gone everywhere. More, Listen, they had the Old Testament scriptures that speak of Christ, didn't they? Yeah, they did. They, they had the Old Testament scriptures that speak of the gospel, that speak of the Messiah, that describe the coming of the Son of Man and the Son of God, that testify to God's great purpose to save people by grace and through faith from every tribe and nation and tongue. They had heard the gospel in seed form in the Old Testament, and now they were hearing the gospel in its fullness, in the proclamation of Christ and Him crucified by preachers sent from God, and so the excuse that the Jews had never re- had never heard was just that. It was an empty excuse. The Jews had heard the good news. They just didn't want to receive it. They'd heard the good news. They just didn't like what it said. 
They'd rather continue in their sin. They'd rather establish their own standard of righteousness before God. They would rather assume that they could make themselves acceptable to God than respond to this message and submit to Almighty God. You know what? I can't help but think of our own nation here, beloved. I really can't. You know, whatever else may be true of our country, and there are people that fight over it. Let, let me just be honest. Here's the reality. It may be that all of the founders of our nation, they were not all Christians, but they were all at least theists and deists. And they had a very clear understanding of the law of God. And all of our founding documents give evidence to that. They're not written in a vacuum. They're written from the perspective of theism. So whatever else might be true of our country, here's the truth. The gospel has been preached here for as long as this nation has existed. It may be difficult now in our post-Christian society to find a faithful gospel-preaching church. But the gospel has gone forth and it continues to go forth through so many different means that if someone truly desires to hear it, they can. They can. The issue for many is not that they have never heard of Jesus at all. It's that they have no desire to hear who Jesus really is. The name of Jesus makes appearances a whole lot of places. In movies, in hip-hop, in foul novels. The issue is not that people have not heard his name. The issue is that people... Don't want to know who he really is. Now, why am I saying that? That doesn't mean, therefore, that we should curtail our evangelistic efforts. In fact, we ought to multiply them. But it is to say this, that in our nation, if someone desires to hear the truth about Christ, they can. And so, like the unbelieving Jews, they are without excuse. You hearing me? And then having put that excuse to bed, well, maybe they just didn't hear. Paul moves on to address... The excuse that maybe the Jews didn't understand what the gospel was claiming. Maybe they didn't understand exactly what was going on. Maybe they weren't discerning the times very well, right? Maybe that was the issue. So look at verses 19 and 20. Paul says, but I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation with a foolish nation. I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Now, what is Paul doing here? What's he saying here? Well, here's where he's going. He's like, look, if you think that the Jews don't understand what's taking place right now, if you think that the unbelieving Jews are just clueless, they can't discern what's taking place, if you think they don't understand the the contents of the gospel, not that they understand it savingly, but if you don't think they understand the contents of the gospel, I'm going to prove to you that you're wrong. And I'm going to prove to you that you're wrong by using the law and the prophets. I'm not just going to tell you what I think. I'm going to tell you what Scripture says, right? That's what preachers do. First of all, look what he does. He calls upon the testimony of Moses. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 21. It's a verse out of one of Moses' last sermons to the nation of Israel before he died, right? Prophetically, here's what's going on in this message. Before we get to verse 21, Moses is predicting Israel's apostasy from God. 
He's predicting how they will forsake God, how they will pursue idols, how they will scoff at the rock of salvation, and how they will serve strange gods, sacrificing to demons and forgetting God. Wow. Yeah. And then the full verse reads this, thusly. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. In other words, because the nation of Israel rejected God and his offer of grace, because they refused to hear his word, because they would forsake him for no gods, God was going to provoke them to anger and jealousy by taking his invitation of grace to a people who were no people. Okay? In other words, a people who were not gathered to be a holy nation before him like the Jews were. And he would take his truth to a foolish nation. In other words, to people who did not have the advantage of having the word of God. And the idea was this. He was going to take his truth to the Gentiles. He was going to redeem Gentiles. He was going to, to save Gentiles, right? And the idea was that when they, when the Israelites saw these uncircumcised, ignorant, pagan Gentiles coming to faith in Christ and calling God Father and claiming and inheriting the spiritual blessings that were promised to Israel when they were, when they, when they were receiving the Holy Spirit in visible, obvious, tangible ways, that the unbelieving Jews should immediately think of Moses' words and understand exactly what was taking place and humble themselves and come to repentance and faith in Christ. But they didn't. They didn't. Instead, what did they do? They did exactly what Moses said they would do, what God said they would do. They got angry and they got jealous. And the fact that they got angry and they got jealous, follow with me now, is what proves that they understood exactly what was taking place and the content of the message that was being preached. Why do I say that? Why do I say that? Listen, they knew what was going on. They understood what Christ claimed and what the gospel said. They understood it intellectually, or listen to me, it never would have made them jealous and angry. They would have just blown it off. They would have just blown it off. I'm not jealous and angry of the Jehovah's Witnesses because they claim to have the corner 144,000 on heaven. You know? I'm not, you know, I'm not angry and jealous of the Mormons because they have the best commercials on TV. I'm not. I'm not angry or jealous of either of those things because I know both of them are wrong. They're lies. They're corruptions, right? Neither am I angry and jealous of Buddhists or angry and jealous of Hindus or angry. I'm not angry and jealous of any of those people. You know why? Because I know what they claim is false. Not the Jews. They were mad. They were angry. Paul's not finished. He quotes from Isaiah 65. Actually, he's going to quote from Isaiah 65, verses 1 and 2. He takes verse 1 first. Look at verse 20 where he, where he quotes from Isaiah 65, 1. He says, then Isaiah is so bold. I love that, right? Like He's, like, he's just like, I want you to know, when Isaiah says this, man, this took guts. Isaiah was so bold. 
as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Not only did the law, not only did Moses witness to the gospel of grace, but so did the prophets. Isaiah here as, as, as the representative, right? And what he says here is really, really pointed. Think about this. If you were to gather Jews and Gentiles in a room and say, who in here seeks God? Whose hands would have gone up? Well, the Jews, we do. Oh, who here, who here prays to the one true God? Oh, that's us again. Well, uh, who, who attempts to serve that one true God? Trifecta, that's us again. Bingo, bingo, we win, right? That would have been them. They thought themselves, arrogantly considered themselves to be seekers and servants of God, right? Of course they deserve some kind of blessing for that. But in reality, who did they serve? Themselves. And behind themselves, who was their father? Who? Satan. They served their prideful sin. And here was Isaiah, God really saying through Isaiah, you know, I'm saving people who aren't seeking me. I'm saving people who aren't asking for me. I save people that are ignorantly stumbling headlong into hell. Here was the truth about the Gentiles. For all their celebrated philosophy and secular wisdom, they understood nothing of the one true God, did they? And their lives were marked by vice and depravity. They were, they were idolaters and they were satisfied in their idolatry, idolatry. The Gentiles did not pursue God at all. God was the one who pursued them. And think about how remarkable this really is, okay? You go into a culture that has absolutely no understanding or frame of reference for the God of Israel, for the God of the Bible, for the God who is, right? They're absolutely ignorant and pagan and wrapped up in their, in their, you know, foolish polytheistic beliefs. And yet these Gentiles were hearing preachers that God sent declare the truth that there is only one God. There is only one God and all of your gods, they're idols. There's one God who's the creator and the sustainer of everything. There's this one God who is holy and who is righteous. There is this one God who sets the standard of right and wrong. And that God made all people in his image for communion with him and for worship and delight. And, 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 and that, that God is going to call every human being that he has created into account. And they were hearing foreigners, because the Jews, the the apostles, all of them, what were they, Jews? They were hearing foreigners declaring the truth that they were fallen and sinful creatures before God. That they were in willful rebellion to the true God. That whatever it was that they were doing in all their pagan ceremonies, they weren't worshiping the true God. That it was all worthless. That they were in willful rebellion to Almighty God. They were under His condemnation and wrath. They were facing eternal punishment in hell. And they had no way within themselves to make peace with God. And be reconciled to Him. They were hearing preachers. Preaching Jesus Christ. God become man. Son of God. 
And how he offered himself as the sinless substitutionary sacrifice for sin on the cross and for the sake of everyone who will believe in him. How he took the guilt of those Gentile sinners upon himself. They had no clue who he was. They weren't expecting a Messiah. But this one named Jesus of Nazareth was how he took the guilt of those Gentile sinners on himself and satisfied God's wrath and forged peace with God. How he satisfied the just anger of the holy God against the sinful people. How he died. How he rose from the dead. How he conquered sin and death and hell. And how he now is ascended into heaven and reigns as the Lord of the universe. And that he's going to come again to judge the living and the dead. And they heard how salvation and right standing and reconciliation and peace and forgiveness and life. With this One true creator God, whom they had never heard of before. How salvation could be found only through faith in his son Jesus Christ. And everything that he is and everything that he had done. This message to them came out of left field. I really want to emphasize that with you. I want you to understand this. They had no preparation for this. It came out of nowhere. And they heard, if you repent and you believe and you call on the name of Jesus of Nazareth, you will be saved. And you know what? They did. They did. They weren't like, wait, isn't there a place in the whole pantheon for some of the other God? No, there's not. Well, don't we get at least honorable mention for all the stuff that we... No, you don't. The only reason you're saved is because of what Christ has done now here's the question you know god pursued them he pursued us right with this redemptive love through christ and why it's because of his grace isn't it grace underlies this all it's grace keep going then paul quotes from isaiah 65 2 the very next verse right look at verse 21 there paul says but but of israel he says all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and a contrary people. What a contrast. What, what a marked contrast. What, what a remarkable contrast. You know, here, here this picture's God, right? Here, 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 this picture's God beckoning and calling and appealing to Israel to come to him, Right? Think about this, right? When, 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 and, and, and they, they ignore him. Now, in a human context, when that happens, it's kind of funny. Like, if you've ever, I don't know if you've ever seen this happen before, but like, you know, maybe like with a dog. I've seen this with a dog before. Like, the owner of the dog will be like, getting on their knees and be like, come here, baby, come here, baby, give me, baby. And the dog runs all around them and goes to everybody else but him. You ever see that happen? It's hilarious. I love it. It's really humorous. That happens in my house sometimes. That's funny in that case, but it's tragic here. God pursued the Gentiles, right? A people that had no knowledge of him at all. He invaded their lives. They responded in faith and he stretched his hands out to a people, right? To Israel, to a people that he'd formed, to a people to whom he had given his promises, to a people that would not have existed Apart from his kindness and his compassion. And they refused to come to him. 
He pictures himself with outstretched arms, right? Picture there is of, of God appealing through his Old Testament prophets and his preachers that were raised up to preach Christ. And yet Israel as a whole remained disobedient and contrary. And those words are strong words. And I want you to understand what they mean. Get really to the heart of it. That word disobedient is one that means more than just not doing what you're told. That word disobedient is one that describes a hardened heart. It describes somebody that has a hardened resolve and refuses to believe what is plain. It's someone, someone that is stubborn and refuses to be persuaded. That digs in their heels and no matter what, I will not be persuaded. And the word contrary describes someone who speaks against something or against someone. Who's adamantly opposed to something or someone. Those two words perfectly encapsulate the unbelieving Jews, don't they? And really anybody who hears the gospel and understands intellectually what it says and yet refuses to believe. These Jews had hardened hearts that refused to believe the gospel and they openly opposed its teaching, right? Even doing so with violence, didn't they? The reaction to the gospel, this disdain for the gospel, it was, it was prophesied. It's not a surprise. But I want you to hear me when I say this. Although it was prophesied, the unbelieving Jews were still at fault. Prophecy did not absolve them of their personal guilt. Likewise, although we know from the teaching of Scripture that not everyone will obey the gospel and repent and believe, nobody is absolved of their guilt because the Scripture predicts that not everyone will believe. We've made ourselves that way. Well, what was the problem besides their fallenness? I mean, what what was the issue here with Israel? Why, Why... Why were they so resistant to the gospel? What was the issue? What was the problem? Beloved, I'll tell you what. It's the same issue for so many who intellectually understand what the gospel is saying, but who refuse it. You know what the problem is? It's that word grace and what it means. Grace is the problem. You might say, well, preacher, that doesn't make sense. Oh, but it does. It does. Because we know what grace is. It's the expression of the free favor and kindness and love of God to someone who deserves the exact opposite, right? Right? And it's that very message of God's undeserved, unmerited favor and kindness and love toward those who do not deserve it that angers fallen man. It offends him. Why do you suppose it is that in the world that we live in, Christianity is so hated as it is? Why is it that people are so intolerant of the message of the gospel? Why is it that the religions of this world can peacefully coexist without even a semblance of the attacks that Christianity suffers? Below, one of the main reasons is grace. That's it. It's grace. It's unthinkable to fallen man who loves himself so much to think that his only hope for a right standing with God is by God's unmerited favor and kindness and love and through his gift of Jesus Christ. Fallen man thinks he's okay. It was the very thing. 
grace was that the Jews despised. Look, they understood that whenever Paul or any of the apostles stood up and preached, they understood what they were saying. That there was no amount of works by which they could save themselves. That there was nothing that they could do to make themselves acceptable to God. And that's why Jesus came and lived the life that they didn't live, although they claimed to. And died the death that they deserved. And rose again on the third day. Like they understood what the, 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 the elements of the gospel were. They knew that they were preaching the apostles and Paul, a, a gospel of salvation, a gospel of right standing with God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And because of his fulfillment of the law on their behalf and of all the spiritual blessings that come from God as a result, and they hated it. You know why? Because the gospel of grace invalidated their felt superiority. It invalidated their felt superiority from keeping their reductionist version of God's law. They didn't keep God's law. They made, they kept their version of God's law. And even then, not very well. They understood that. That's why they hated the gospel so much. Here's the deal. Grace puts everybody on the same footing before God, right? Doesn't it? As a sinner who needs salvation. There's no pecking order at the foot of the cross. Grace says all your efforts, man, all your religious works, all your religious pedigree and legacy, all of your, you know, supposed intelligence, all of your human efforts at morality, all your human merit, all the stuff you stack up to heaven, all of your self-posturing earns nothing with God. God's not impressed. What do you mean God's not impressed with me? I'm impressed with me. Right. And that's the problem. Grace gives no place to self-promotion and self-justification. Grace says when you look at the at Christ on the cross, you see what it is that you actually deserve. You see what it is that, that you have earned with God. And you see how desperately you need, you need a Savior to take in your place that condemnation because you couldn't survive. It's the only way you can be forgiven for your sins. It gives no place to make much of yourself and whatever you think makes you better than other people. In fact, grace says get over yourself. Grace is a pride killer. Grace shows us for what we really are in ourselves, right? As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now here's the truth. You know what? If the gospel were this, it was, you know what, man? Man, I almost feel like you need to have skinny jeans on and like something else when I say this. You know, big, cool, huge, full beard, a band playing behind me and an earring in my right ear. Right? No, left ear. Right? If the gospel were, you know what, man, God sees how hard you try. God sees, man, how, how, how you, how hard you're working and, and the good life, man, that you've lived. God sees the way you're pressing on and how you're trying to, to step into what God has for you. God sees you, man. And it's grace. It just gets you over the hump. It just, it just gives you that little push that you need to get where you're already trying to go. If that were the gospel, you'd have people lining up and they would have no problem with it. And in fact, that's why megachurches are full like they are, because of foolishness like that. But that's not the gospel of grace at all. That's not the gospel of grace. That's, that's the gospel of 
of drunken, staggering imagination, according to Isaiah, if you're here on Wednesday nights. God's grace pursues and saves sinful wretches, the ignorant and the undeserving, and those who are not looking for God, the wicked, those who are blinded by sin. Grace saves the irreligious and the idolaters. Grace saves the sexually immoral the thieves, the homosexuals, the greedy, the drunkards, the rival, the, the revilers, the swindlers, the gossips, the foolish, the filthy, and the crude. And praise God, it also saves the self-righteous. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The problem was the Jews refused to see themselves in any light like that. Needy? No way. They wouldn't see themselves that way. So they rejected the gospel. I've got, I've got some merit with God. No, no, you don't. No, you don't. It's the case, really, of so many in our gospel-poor but richly self-esteeming culture in which we live. You know, it's why you can have somebody say, and, and I, I've had this discussion with somebody, you, know, you mean to tell me that a serial killer who repents and believes in Christ can go to heaven when I, who haven't done anything nearly as bad, will be rejected if I don't believe in Christ? I take care of my family. I do good for my parents. You're meaning to tell me that a serial killer who calls upon Christ can go to heaven and I won't if I don't believe. That's absurd. How do you answer somebody like that? I'll tell you what, somebody who asks that question neither understands the holiness of God or their own sinfulness. You think you're essentially and fundamentally different from that serial killer. Well, I'm a suburban mom. So what? I'm a, you know, I'm a soccer mom. Okay. You think, people think, that they're essentially and fundamentally different from that serial killer. You're not. You're not. And some of you are grading against that right now. You're hearing that and you're like, oh, that's... Mm-mm. You are every bit the rebel against God that that serial killer is, though your sins may not be as obvious. You're every bit as deserving of eternal death as that serial killer. How can you say that? Because it's true. God's grace in Christ is anyone's only hope. So what's the answer then to this dilemma of inexcusable and stubborn disobedience? Well, you know what it is? It's the faithfulness of God. It's what it is. Paul asked the question, look at it. Look at the beginning of chapter 11 and verse 1. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? I mean, here they are. They're disobedient. They're contrary. They're almost not even worth the effort. You know, has God just given up on them altogether? Has God given up on the Israelites, every last one of them? Is he done dealing with this foolish, these foolish, disobedient, contrary troublemakers? Is there sin greater than the power and purpose of God? And Paul gives the answer. Of course not. He says, by no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, now, God, God hasn't rejected his people. He hasn't thrown in the towel. And I'm proof positive. That's what he's saying. I am the proof that God hasn't cast off every Jew. I mean, if there's anybody that was the quintessential Israelite, it was, it was Paul, wasn't it? Like, he out-Israelited every Israelite, didn't he? 
Like this was the man who boasted that he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, if there was ever any Israelite in history that could have been considered and described as disobedient and contrary to the gospel of grace, it was Paul, wasn't it? Paul was a Christ hater, man. He was a grace hater. He was a church hater. He was a man who was meticulous about the religion and the tradition of the Pharisees and who went about trying to establish his own righteousness by doing what? Well, by hunting down and killing Christians. You want your serial killer? Here he is. Here he is. And yet here was a man writing this letter, a man transformed and forgiven and saved by Christ, proclaiming unashamedly the gospel of grace, suffering for it, and bearing the marks of the Lord Jesus in his body, serving Christ with all of his soul, living to exalt the glory of Christ. How could that be? Because verse 2, because verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Paul had run as far as he could from God, thinking he was following him. Paul was on a collision course with hell. And thought he was righteous. Paul would have run himself right into destruction. Had it not been this. That he'd been foreknown by God. That's the distinctive qualifier. God hasn't rejected those whom he foreknew. Those whom he, what? Foreloved, right? Those upon whom he placed his special distinguishing, electing, choosing love before the foundation of the world. God pursues those whom He's chosen. He pursues those whom He has foreknown, no matter how great their disobedience and no matter how deeply contrary they are to His grace. He pursues them. He humbles them. He regenerates their stony hearts. He makes them to be born of the Spirit. He writes His Word on their souls and He creates faith in Christ where once before there was only determined unbelief. God does it by His grace. God pursues those whom He has loved. He delights, he's glorified in saving hard-hearted people that reject him. And here's the irony. I want you to see the irony of this. Here's the irony of it all. God overcame Paul's hatred of divine grace by what? By what? More grace. God overcame Paul's hatred of divine grace by the very grace that Paul once despised. God made him to see that all that he once regarded as making him something before God, right? Once grace gripped his heart, he made him see that it was all worthless. Isn't that his testimony? Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes from faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's why, for this reason, Paul could testify to the Galatians with these words. He says, Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 through 16, he says, You have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. But, but, 
And then Paul describes what God did. But he set me apart before I was born. And he called me by his grace. And he was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. God's grace made the difference for the grace hater Paul. God's grace made the difference. Sovereign grace made the difference for Paul, the self-righteous, for Paul, the grace hater. The disobedience and the defiance of men, listen to me, beloved, is no match for the sovereign grace and the electing love of God. God will have those whom he has chosen. (laughs) He's going to have whom he's chosen. Even amid the seeming wholesale rejection of Christ by the Jews and the rejection of Christ in our own age, God will have those who are his. It's that simple. In fact, he drives this point home by using the days of Elijah as an illustration. It's really great. He says, starting in the second half of verse 2, he says, Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at this present time there is a remnant. Chosen by grace. <laughs> Look what he says, man. He goes to Elijah. The days, of Elijah. the days of Elijah were perhaps one of the darkest periods in the, in the history of the nation of Israel. Okay? The king then was Ahab, right? He was a wretched dude. He was married to, an, to a wife that was even more wretched than he was. That's hard to believe, but true. A woman named Jezebel. In fact, so wretched are Ahab and Jezebel that nobody with any sense names their kids those names today, Right? Like there are certain names because of scripture that are off limits or people should realize are off limits. Some people are dumb enough to not realize that. But Ahab was the king. You remember, it was, it was a big battle between Ahab and Elijah over who was the troubler of the nation of Israel. Whether it was Ahab or it was Elijah for preaching on behalf of God. And you remember, it all kind of boiled, it all kind of boiled over one day and, and they had this, uh, this contest, this showdown between the prophets of Baal and, the, and, and Elijah on Mount Carmel. In fact, it's one of the great scenes in all of Scripture. It's in 1 Kings chapter 18. If, you've ne- if you don't know this story, go home this afternoon and read it. Okay? 1 Kings 18. But long story short, here's what happens. Elijah's got this thing going on with Ahab, and so he calls the nation of Israel, you know, to, to make a decision. He calls for this, this, this competition, and, and for the nation of Israel to make a decision, to either trust in Baal and serve him, or trust in Yahweh and, and serve him. And so it went down like this. The prophets of Baal and Elijah, they gathered together on Mount Carmel, and they were both to prepare an offering and call upon the name of their God. And whoever answered by fire from heaven would be the one true God, and everybody would know it, right? So, being a gentleman, Elijah let the prophets of Baal go first. And man, they, they gave it everything, they gave it the, all they had. They cried out to Baal to answer them. They danced around, they cut themselves, they were bleeding all over. In fact, scripture says they raved on. They raved on. Right? And they raved on and on, and absolutely nothing happened. So then Elijah builds an altar, he digs a trench around it, he soaks his sacrifices with water, and doesn't do anything theatrical. He just calls upon the name of God, right? And then, boom, fire falls from heaven. Everything is consumed. And, 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 you know, God is proven to be the one true God. Yahweh's God, right? But it's not over. Because then Elijah's like, grab the prophets of Baal. And they grab him and they go down to the brook Kishon and he kills every one of them with a sword. When Jezebel found out, she swore to Elijah that she would do the same thing to him. 
So he takes off. He flees. He runs, right? Runs all the way to Mount Hebron or Sinai. He goes there. He's in a cave. And he, you know, he, he laments to God about the condition of Israel. He says, Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. He thought he was the only faithful soul in all of, of Israel. I'm it. I'm the only one, right? And God's like, mm, not quite, Elijah. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. What's the point? point is that God has a remnant, a people for himself, a people that he's kept for himself in any and all ages, no matter how dark they, it may appear. The existence of a remnant, though, is not because of their greater wisdom or nobility. It's not because of their greater spiritual perception. It's entirely because of what? His choosing. I've kept them for myself. It's entirely because of his electing grace. God kept for himself, by grace, 7,000 men for his glory and his purpose and his delight. Amidst this ungodly majority, God always has a chosen minority. So why is Paul telling the story? He's telling the story because he's saying, look, so too, at this present time, there's a remnant that's chosen by grace. Look, I know that just like in the days of Elijah, you know, it seemed like he was the only one that was actually walking with God. He was the only saved man in the entire nation. And right now you're saying, man, are we it? You know, how many, there can't be many here and, 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 and God must not be working anymore. He's saying, no, no, there's still a remnant. In this time where it seems like there's not an appreciable number of Jews coming to faith in Christ, God still has a remnant that belongs to him. A people that have been chosen by God's grace and chosen by his sovereign mercy and his covenant love. A people that will hear that irresistible call of Christ's voice through the preaching and who will respond in repentance and faith and who will be saved. There are Jews that are going to be saved. A remnant from out of all of Israel that's chosen by grace. There are yet Americans, beloved, that are going to be saved. A remnant chosen by grace and no amount of human sin can derail God's plan to save his people or thwart his purpose. He just can't do it because ultimately it all comes down to grace. It all comes down to grace. Paul sums up his argument in verse 6. Look what he says. But if that remnant chosen by grace, if it's by grace, the choosing is by grace, It's no longer on the basis of works or otherwise. Grace would no longer be grace. Now, it just seems like Paul is repeating something here that he's already said many times. Well, he kind of is. But this is a conclusive and absolute statement, okay? Like, here's the end of it. Here's the end of it. If it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. It can't be. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. That's it. Okay, he's saying basically that's, that's the final statement. If salvation were based on works, on human works and effort, listen to me. If salvation were based on works, on human works or efforts at any point, and especially those of you that are from a background that tells you that God does some and you do some and you meet in the middle, you listen to me, you've been sold a false bill of goods. If salvation were based on works, human works and effort at any point, then grace would no longer be grace. He's just saying, if election is based on anything that we do, if we're responsible in any way for God, God's sovereign grace towards us, if salvation is my doing in any way, then here's the deal. Listen to me now. Grace is no longer grace, but rather it's a wage that God owes me. I did something. God owes me. Is it that simple? Yeah, it is. 
Beloved, here's the reason why our preaching is rooted in the sovereign grace of God. Here's why it's rooted in the sovereign grace of God. Here's why we don't budge on this one or be fuzzy on this. And God's good desire to save for himself a people by his power and by his might through Jesus Christ that overcomes the natural determined unbelief of everyone whom he has chosen for salvation, who is born in sin and who can never be saved in any other way, it's got to be grace. I want you to think about this. If as many claim, okay, many people claim this, fallen men has the, have the power within themselves to believe in Christ. If that's true, if fallen men actually have the power within themselves to believe in Christ on their own, right? Then that means that faith is something that sinful people are capable of exercising in their own power. And if that's the case, that makes faith and turns faith from being the gift of God into a work that I can accomplish on my own and in which I can boast, right? Or the other one. If God chose us because he looked down the corridor of time and foresaw that we would believe in Christ of our own volition, our own will, then his choosing is not grace. Why? Here's why. Because it's based on something that he saw that we would do. A work that earns standing with God and in which we could rightly boast. Horatius Bonar said, If salvation is made to hinge upon the merit or fitness in man, seen or unseen, seen, I'm sorry, or foreseen, grace is at an end. You just write grace off if that's the case. Human works as a means of merit with God, turns the gospel of grace on its head. Look, we've made ourselves, Scripture testifies, sinners. We've made ourselves spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. We've darkened our own understanding. We have become futile in our thinking. We've become alienated from the life that is in God because of our hardness of heart. In other words, the message of Scripture is not you're basically good. You've just got a little bit of flaw in you. And it's not just the unbelieving Jews. It's the state of all of us. Here's the deal. If I can raise myself from spiritual death, think about this. This is what it requires. If we take away grace, this is what has to happen. If I can raise myself from spiritual death, if, if, if I can enlighten my own mind, if I can find myself when I'm lost, which is about the most absurd thing that anybody could ever do, right? You're lost and you can find yourself. You can't find yourself. If you're lost, you're lost. Then I got room to boast. But grace gives me no room to boast in myself at all. And you know why? It's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of what? Works. So that no one may boast. It's all of, it's, it's all by grace. Our only boast, our only boast is in the God who saved us in spite of ourselves. Salvation's all of God's grace. On our own, we would never seek God. We'd never believe the gospel. We'd never trust in Christ alone and not in ourselves. We would never be justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the gift of God. We would never do it apart from grace. Salvation is grace from beginning to end. All right, so how do we deal with this? What do, how do we respond to this text? First of all, Christian, do this. Glory in the grace of Christ, can't we? Can, let's, here's what we need to do. More than being impressed with ourselves and more than being impressed with, with, with popular ministries and more than being impressed with anything else. You know what you need to be impressed with? The grace of God in Christ. Let us, can we exult and rejoice and celebrate and delight in God's grace to us? I mean, 
God's sovereign grace, his electing love, his determined pursuit of his people to make him his own, his gospel of a full and a free salvation through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ ought to make us love and worship and overflow with unending praise and thanksgiving to God. Shouldn't it? I would say to you, we need to start being a lot more excited about the grace of God and a lot less excited about the things in which we rejoice that are worthless and burning up and are going to pass away on the day that Jesus Christ returns and are going to be seen to, to be worthless. And why did you waste your time on that, which was of no worth at all eternally? Celebrate the grace of God. Exalt in the grace of God. Don't try to explain it away. Don't try to, like, add your works to it. Don't do any of that foolishness. Rejoice in the grace that has been given to you. Without grace, we would have never made one move toward Christ, let alone believe in Him, let alone be saved, not one of us. Again, Horatius Bonar said this. He said, Grace burst forth spontaneously from the bosom of eternal love and rested not until it removed every impediment and found its way to the sinner's side, swelling around him in full flow. Grace does away with the distance between the sinner and God, which sin had created. Grace meets the sinner on the spot where he stands. Grace approaches him just as he is. Grace does not wait until there is something to attract it, nor till a good reason is found for the sinner for its flowing to him. It was free sovereign grace when it first thought of the sinner. It was free grace when it found and laid hold of him. And it is free grace when it hands him up into glory. Amen. Live like it. Moreover, let's put to bed once and for all any thought that our standing with God is predicated by anything good in us. It's not. Our standing with God. We can't earn anything good from God. We, when we stand, I want you to listen, when we stand before God, when we stand before Christ on the last day, right? And, and we give an account for why it is that we're in heaven and others are not. No one is going to rehearse a laundry list of all the good things that I have done that makes me deserving of being here. It'll be by your grace, by your love, by your mercy, because you did it all. It wasn't me. It's all you, and it's none of me. Beloved, fight That thought that we have earned anything with God. Even now, our our good works are the result of His grace to us and not the cause of it. R.C. Sproul said, and I agree with him 100%, he said, perhaps the most difficult task for us is to rely on God's grace and on God's grace alone for our salvation. It's difficult for our pride to rest on grace. Grace is for other people. It's for beggars. We don't want to live by a heavenly welfare system. We want to earn our own way and atone for our own sins. We like to think that we will go to heaven because we deserve to be there. He's not talking about unbelievers. He's talking about Christians. No, beloved, we'll be there by grace alone and that's it. Or we won't be there at all. Third, listen. 
In light of this text, we need to be praying for hardened sinners and proclaiming the gospel to everybody that we can. God's sovereign election, His grace to Christ, that is not, that is not a despairing doctrine. God's election is a, a doctrine that brims with hope. There would be no one saved apart from God's divine grace, His sovereign grace, His sovereign election. I mean, look at the hardness of Paul, right? His determined hatred of Christ, his persecution of the church. No one would ever have looked at Paul when he was in the midst of his rebellion against God and said, you know what? I think that guy's chosen. Not anybody. Not a single person. The doctrine of sovereign grace rings with the hope that despite ourselves, God continues to save those that belong to him. Trust in the power of God to overcome all obstacles. Pray for the lost. Tell the good news to everybody and trust in God to bring his truth home and power to those whom he's chosen. Nobody's beyond the grace of God. Listen to me. No one is beyond the grace of God until they breathe their final breath. You don't give up on anybody. God is able to raise the dead. He's able to give sight to the blind. He's able to break a heart of stone and put in its place a heart of flesh. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? Do you? He did it with you. Why shouldn't he do it for another? God of glory, Christ the Redeemer and Deliverer and Savior and Lord, he's got to be proclaimed. Listen, I want to say this to you. We can complain, and we do, and we lament, and we talk about it, and we call out the low view of God and the corruption of the gospel of Jesus Christ in modern Christianity. We should do that. But you know what we also ought to do? We ought to hear that as a call to redouble our efforts and to make the truth known. If we don't do it, who's going to do it? Who's going to do it? Do you think in these unfaithful, God-dishonoring churches, I mean, I know God can speak through the mouth of a donkey. I understand that. But do you really think, like, one of those guys is going to get up on a Sunday and be like, usually I like to talk to you about all the ways that you can deify me and improve your life. But today I'm going to actually talk to you about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't know much about it. I'm just going to tell you what I found. Do you think anybody's going to do that? Where do you think the gospel is going to come from? In our, in our, where do you think the proclamation of the gospel is going to come from in our fallen age if it doesn't come from you? Where do you think we're going to raise up faithful preachers for a next generation if it doesn't come from faithful churches? I think it was Luther that said, we're only always one generation away from apostasy. No joke. Serious business. And then last, for those of you that are here this morning and you're not trusting in Christ alone for salvation, you're trusting a combination of Christ and your works or whatever, or maybe you're just trusting in your church attendance or whatever it is, don't hear this message and say, well, what if I'm not elect? You know, what if I'm not elect? You know, if I'm not elect, there's no point in believing in Christ. If my name's not written in the book of life and all my believing's in vain, don't you dare misuse God's good and sovereign election as a reason to excuse your unbelief. Don't you do it. Since salvation is all of grace, there's no reason to think that you should be excluded. Don't concern yourself with whether or not you're among God's chosen. That knowledge belongs to God. And no one can know if he or she is elect until after they've been saved. In fact, you're determining whether or not you're elect is not your business. It's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to hear the gospel of grace and trust in Jesus Christ as your only Savior and Lord. Paul said, this trust, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Are you a sinner? Are you? 
then you're just the sort of person for whom Christ lived a life of righteousness and died a sinner's death on the cross and rose from the dead and offers forgiveness of sins and perfect righteousness before God, eternal life through faith in Him. If you're a sinner, you're just the kind of person Christ has died for. So hear His voice. And, and see His outstretched, beckoning and willing and welcoming hands held out to you. If you just simply come and repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Hear the gospel. Hear the voice of Christ. And believe and be saved. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for you. And for the gospel of grace. And for the greatness of your grace and the way that you pour it on. You pour it out abundantly on those who are undeserving. In fact, Lord, the truth is everyone who receives grace is undeserving. Because it's your unmerited favor. So when we look at this word, we need you to drive its truth home to our hearts. God, I don't know the way that you need to apply this to our hearts, but I do know this. None of us need to sit here unmoved. None of us need, need to sit here and like ch- check it off. Like, okay, I've sat through one more sermon without realizing this is one less exposition of the word of God that you're ever going to hear. God, I pray that you'd make us to respond to your word with urgency and with faith, and with gratitude, Lord, that you've provided it for us. Pray, Lord, we'd examine each of us, our hearts, before you today. I, I pray that we'd examine whether or not we're really trusting in Christ exclusively and alone. I pray, Lord God, that we'd be moved in our souls to really think deeply about everything that we've heard this morning. But I pray that, Lord, ultimately you'll be the one that will apply the truth to the hearts of your hearers because you're the one that's got to do it. If I try to do it, Lord, it, it won't have power, but if you do it, it has power that's irresistible. So please do it. I thank you for this time. I thank you for your great grace. I pray you be glorified now in the way that we respond to your truth. In Jesus' name, amen.